Good evening. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Blutinger, and I'm the director of the Jewish Studies program at Cal State Long Beach. It's my great pleasure to introduce tonight Dr. David Ruderman, who is the Joseph Meyerhoff Professor of Modern Jewish History and was formerly the Eller Dury Oh, I should have read this more clearly. Daravoff, sorry, um, director of the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, prior to coming to Pennsylvania, he taught at the University of Maryland and at Yale University. He is the author of many books and articles, including The World of a Renaissance Jew, Kabbalah, or Kabbalah, depending on your accent, Magic and Science, A Valley of Vision, Jewish Thought and Scientific Discovery in Early Modern Europe, uh, also published in Italian, Hebrew, and Russian. Uh, Jewish Enlightenment in an English Key, Anglo-Jewry's Construction of Modern Jewish Thought, and several other books. I actually had a whole list. I was, Ari wanted me to read this, but we're going to abbreviate a little bit. Uh, three of his books have won national book awards in Jewish history. Uh, his most recent book, called A Best-Selling Hebrew Book of the Modern Era, The Book of the Covenant of Pinchas Horowitz and Its Remarkable Legacy appeared in 2014. He is the past president of the American Academy for Jewish Research. Uh, he has done two courses for the Great Courses Teaching Company. Uh, and in 2001, the National Foundation for Jewish Culture honored him with its Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in Jewish history. So please give a warm welcome to Dr. David Ruderman. Thank you. Good evening, um, and thank you for coming. Uh, and thank you, Jeffrey, for the kind introduction. Um, all right, I, I don't like so many mics, but I see I have two of them. Uh, first of all, you can hear me okay, right? All right, uh, if I bang my head, I usually use my hands when I lecture. So uh, if it goes like this, uh, you'll know um, I'm just hitting the mic. Um, Jeffrey mentioned my last book, uh, and that is indeed the subject of this evening. Um, I gave it as a series of talks at the University of Washington in 2013, and the book was published in 2014. Um, so a few of you here have been following me around uh, Orange County uh, for the last uh, 18 days, uh, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, I don't have enough stamina. I don't know how you do. Uh, but um, I am giving 21 lectures this month, uh, and this is number 13, but who's counting? Um, but this is a very special one because I'm speaking about, uh, I, I haven't been speaking very much about my own work in, uh, during the past 45 years that I've been a Jewish historian, um, but this is the most recent work, uh, and I hope I can be, I get you interested. The context of this talk uh, is, uh, what I've done is to cluster all of my talks this month around various themes. And the theme of this cluster is called God and Nature, the interaction between Jews and Judaism, uh, the natural world, medicine, and science. I've already given two previous talks on this topic, one that sort of introduced the topic, uh, the classical Jewish sources on nature and science and magic, uh, and then the second talk, uh, talk was about three Jewish doctors in the early modern period and their relationship uh, to the natural world uh, and how they conjoined their own uh, discipline of medicine with uh, their own Jewish identity. Uh, so this is a continuation and really the culmination of those three talks. 
and it revolves ar ar around a character who lived at the end of the 18th century uh, and made his mark on uh, Judaism in the modern era in the 19th century. Um, as you will see, he wrote only one book of significance, but the book was a bestseller and was reproduced in 40 different editions over the course of the 19th and the 20th century. Uh, in fact, uh, just about a year ago, another edition came out. Uh, and we'll have to explore why a work which is a kind of a scientific encyclopedia had so much import and so much interest and relevance to Jews. So one of the questions that I want to deal with before I end this lecture is to speak about the legacy of the book. Uh, the reception of the book. Uh, and indeed, you will see that in addition to talking about nature, science, and Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition, I'm also going to be speaking about the nature of the printed book uh, uh, among Jews in modern Jewish culture and the significance of this book in terms of the history of book production and book selling, so that there is a whole modern dimension here that needs to be explored. How did I get involved with this? I'm really an early modernist that works uh, on an earlier period. Uh, but when I was working on a book called Kabbalah, Magic, and Science uh, that Jeffrey mentioned uh, many, many years ago, um, a work about a Jewish physician in Italy in the 16th century, I noticed there was a book that looked similar, that felt similar, that indeed was addressing the same kinds of issues, but came from the late 18th and, uh, century and made its impact on 19th century Jewry. Uh, I w always wondered why. Is this a kind of belated expression of that uh, remarkable uh, uh, venture of Kabbalists who are interested in the natural world? Uh, something that emerges in the context of the Renaissance, and the few of you who have heard me speak about the Kabbalah and the Renaissance know exactly what I'm talking about. I will return to that in just a second. Uh, a kind of belated example of that. What is this, why is this book a modern book as opposed to being a book that appeared in the Renaissance when the, the study of Kabbalah among Jews and Christians was at its height? Uh, so that clearly was a question. So I looked at it then and I said to myself, I know about this book, but it's so late and it's Eastern Europe and I, I don't know enough about that. I'll sort of leave the book alone. But, you know, as you get older and, you know, as a, as a professor and, you know, uh, what the hell? I got tenure ready. I can write anything I want, uh, you know. Uh, so why bother uh, limiting myself? So I've jumped into areas. Uh, tomorrow night uh, for another uh, class that I'm giving, I'm speaking about work that I'm doing in the 19th century. So this is actually early now because I've sort of moved uh, from uh, beginning my work and my first book is on the 15th century. Uh, and now I'm talking about the 18th and soon on the 19th. Um, but as you will see, there is a common uh, connection uh, with, um, I can't bear, I'm going to try to see that watch, but I'm going to, a historian should always put their watch out like this so they can time themselves. So I, I started about 20 of, okay. I, I, Jeffrey hasn't given me a time limit, but just in case. Um, all right, so let me introduce the man, tell you something about his work, the context of the work, and describe why I find this book so fascinating. And uh, if I've succeeded, even though it sounds totally esoteric at this point, if I've succeeded in indicating why this book was read by so many Jews and why it is an indicator of modern Jewish culture 
I think I'll have succeeded. And also, I want to follow out on my theme, which has been a, a theme through, uh, through uh, two other lectures, about the relationship between Judaism and the science. Why would a Kabbalist, that is a student of Jewish mystical thought, but more than Jewish mystical thought, a person who actually does uh, mystical kinds of techniques, who thinks as a mystic, why would he be interested in science and natural world? So that's really the question. I'm going to get to that in a second. Now let me describe uh, the person that I'm, and you will see, uh, unfortunately, I've got to come over there to see what I'm showing you. Um, but uh, as you can see, you still hear me? Yeah. yeah. I got a loud voice. You see, Jeffrey? Uh, Sefer Habrit uh, is the name of the book, the Book of the Covenant in English. Uh, this is the first edition of the book and the first page, 1797, 1797 Bruno, which is in Czechoslovakia today. Um, the second edition is on the right. You see, it says Vilna. Can you read the Hebrew at all, some of you? Vilna, 1817. So you're seeing two editions. Now, what is this? That's a title. That looks strange for a title. But you see, as you will see, there is no table of contents. So more or less, the book is described in a long advertisement in the title. That's the title. He says, we're going to see this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to jump here, and we're going to see this. And it goes on and on, and he's sort of selling the book. Bruin is a very interesting place. Uh, it was a seat of uh, the Frankists uh, in the 18th century. The Frankists were a heretical sect. Um, what does that have to do with Sefer Abrid? I'm not totally sure, but it's very interesting that the first edition appears there. As I suggest, there are 40 editions. There are six editions in Yiddish. There are seven editions in Ladino, the language of Jews who spoke Spanish, uh, that, that is Spanish with Hebrew characters, more or less. Um, uh, and also, uh, it is a, is a dialect of Spanish. So there's a wide circulation of this book Right up, as I said, to uh, my edition is from Mea Sha'arim uh, in Jerusalem. It's a Jerusalem edition from 1990. But as I said, a new edition just came out. Not from an academic press, but from very orthodox Jews. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. All right, so uh, even though I don't need the mic, I just showed you, I'm going to use it anyway. All right. So Pinchas Horowitz lived from 1765 to 1821. He was born in Vilna, so he's an Eastern European Jew. Uh, he spent time in Krakow and in Vilna, uh, and then he traveled, and he traveled a lot. And I could mention some of the cities that he visited, Budapest, Lemberg, Frankfurt, the Oder, Galicia, uh, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, The Hague, London, Prague, uh, and he died in Krakow. Uh, and uh, I have a copy of his, uh, of his gravestone, I mean a picture of his gravestone. Pinchas, oh, I didn't say his name, my God. Or did I say his name? Pinchas Horowitz, okay? Not a, not a best-selling name, but, but after this lecture, you're going to remember it. Pinchas Horowitz, okay? H-U-R-W-I-T-Z. Uh, sorry if I didn't mention it, uh, but I thought I did. In any case, Pinchas Horowitz was not an author of any other books that were well-known. Uh, he did write commentaries on the Kabbalah, on the Jewish mystical tradition, uh, and only one of them was published, uh, a commentary on a Kabbalist of the 18th century known as Emanuel Chayriki, who was himself an interpreter of Lurianic Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic school that emerged in the 16th century. Clearly, Pinchas Horowitz knew his Lurianic Kabbalah, and he wrote a commentary called Tam Etzo, 
it appeared in one edition and then it disappeared. So to say that that book is very important, it is actually very rare. Uh, the text he was commenting on was, is relatively rare. Uh, and then we have uh, several uh, notes. He wrote a few notes on another Kabbalist named Abraham Abulafia. Uh, and he mentions in his Sefer Habrit a bunch of other books that he wrote. Uh, and in one of the editions, uh, we are told by the editor, if you buy this book, I will publish some of these other manuscripts, but they were never published. So this is a, uh, you know, there are a lot of academics like this, you know, one book and, you know, we make the, their claim to fame is, is the one book. Uh, but clearly this book was, as you will see, a bestseller. Now what is the context of this book? He tells us that he is not simply writing a scientific encyclopedia, although he will use that word, but he is writing a commentary on another mystical text. That's what he does. He writes commentaries on mystical texts. And the text that he's writing a commentary on is by a very famous Kabbalist named Chaim Vital, who lived in the 16th century. And, among, and he was the primary commentator of the great Kabbalist Isaac Luria, uh, an enormously interesting figure. We now, by the way, have a new dissertation from the Hebrew University, just got a copy of it. Uh, and uh, this young man is serving as a kind of uh, postdoc for me at Penn. Um, an attempt to study Chaim Vital from the perspective of the history of medicine. Vital happened to be a doctor as well. And the commentary of Luriana Kabbalah, so this young man argues, is indeed about the human body. And all of medical terms and all the medical concepts help to explain this Kabbalah. So here's another example of this coagination, this connection between mystical thinking or the mystical mentality uh, and the na naturalistic philosophy uh, in the 16th century. But be that as it may, uh, Vital wrote a popular work called Sha'arei Kedushah, The Gates of Holiness, in which he describes the morality and ethics of being a Jew and finally how one can experience prophecy in our day. In other words, it is, it is a totally mystical work. Uh, in other words, he describes how when you are no longer living in Israel and when you're no li longer living in the biblical times when there were prophets, how you can, if not be exactly a prophet, at least imbibe the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Now, don't ask me what that means because I've never had that experience, but I'm still striving. But in any case, Chaim Vital's work is a kind of Musser work. Uh, it is a kind of moralistic treatise which leads one on a mystical ascent to reach God, to touch God, to imbibe the Holy Spirit, whatever that means exactly. Um, so, all of a sudden, Pinchas Horowitz says, I need to write a commentary on this book because it's missing one thing. What is it missing? It's missing a discussion of nature. And nature is an important part of what Chaim Vital is writing about. If you want to become a prophet, you need to know the natural world. So believe it or not, he produces a commentary, which in the edition that I have, and I, I would have brought it, but it was too heavy to carry on the plane, uh, it's about 700 pages. And half of the book, uh, and it's unbelievable, because they put out these small editions, which you can hardly read. Uh, but nevertheless, people bought them. Uh, there were, for example, in Vilna, uh, uh, nine, ten editions in the 19th century. 
So they were, and, and what's also very interesting, despite the fact that this is the age of print, there are no illustrations in this book, and there should be, because there are so many mental images that this book has regarding the natural world. But nevertheless, I guess he didn't have money, or whatever, or the publishers, the book sold. And we, again, we'll have to come back to that question. So a commentary on Chaim Vital is a pretext for writing a work on nature. So the book is about six, 700 pages. The first three, 400 pages are essentially a description of the natural world and natural science as was known in the 18th century, with a long discussion on the body, on the human body, uh, and uh, the various parts of the body, uh, and the various disciplines of science as it was known uh, in the 18th century. In the second half, we enter a kind of moral tale in describing the love of God, the beauty of God, and so on, and we move uh, into the level, into the area of religious literature. Uh, there are still references to the natural world, but clearly it is mostly in the first part. And then uh, the penultimate chapter is a chapter that I will speak about in a little while called Havatraim, which is a chapter which is a precondition for imbibing the Holy Spirit. And that chapter describes the love of human beings. But Pinchas Horowitz, this Eastern European Jew, this autodidact, this guy that you would never have heard of except for this book, writes the following. In order to imbibe the divine spirit, in order to be a prophet, one needs to love all human beings, especially non-Jews. I must say I found that book uh, so exciting uh, and so meaningful. I, I needed to recover that book. I, I once described in one of my earlier lectures that what the historian does is sort of revive the dead. I needed to refine that, to identify that idea and to pull it out of the 19th century and bring, out to, bring us to our own world. We needed, uh, a, a, so a chapter of 50 pages called The Love of Human Beings from Leviticus, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So uh, that's what this chapter is about. Then finally, we enter the last chapter, which is a kind of entering a room, putting on white, uh, cleansing oneself, and then somehow uh, having this mystical union with God. So this is really a remarkable fusion of science and mysticism. How do they go together, and why was this Kabbalist interested in the subject in the first place? Now let me say a few words about contextualizing this book. Um, first, the book is not so unusual if one compares it with works from the 16th and 17th century. There were other books written by, uh, in this vein. Science, of course, was discovered by Jews during the scientific revolution like everyone else, but particularly the Kabbalists were fascinated with descriptions of the natural world. And there were a whole group of them. By this time, Aristotelian metaphysics had been challenged. Jewish esotericism, in some respects, had replaced uh, notions of philosophy, of, uh, of scholastic metaphysics. Maimonides was now being challenged uh, for his Aristotelian notions of the Middle Ages. And the whole group of different mindsets. Uh, one of my earlier lectures was on the Renaissance philosopher Pico della Mirandola, uh, this Christian philosopher in the 15th century that surrounded himself with Jews in order to study the Kabbalah, in order to revive his own understanding of Christianity. But that mindset of the Christian philosopher also had its impact upon Jews. 
So a group of Jews, and I, I could mention a whole bunch of names, they wouldn't mean a great deal to you, like Yohanan Alimano, who was himself a teacher of Pico, and like a man named Abraham Yagel, upon which I wrote two books, uh, were indeed interested in the natural world. In Yagel's case, he was actually a doctor who also studied the Kabbalah. So therefore, this idea is not totally unique. These complex figures were known to uh, Horvitz, and he quotes them throughout his work. In other words, he is aware. One of the most interesting is from the 17th century, a man named Yasharmi Kandia, a graduate of the University of Padua, the medical school, who refers to Galileo as Rabbi Galileo and talks about cosmology and physics and medicine and at the same time is interested in the language of the Kabbalah. How to explain that? Well, in the context of the Renaissance, the Kabbalah, as it's transformed from Palestine, where it originates, the Lurianic Kabbalah, is kind of reinterpreted in a, in a kind of a different in, 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 interpretive grill, to use the word. In other words, it is, it is joined with Neoplatonism and Pythagoreanism and all of these ancient esoteric disciplines which are very much part of the Renaissance mindset. And all, all of a sudden, the, 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 the mythic quality of Kabbalah is transformed into a kind of esoteric philosophy. So therefore, it can be compared and contrasted with other forms of the occult. And therefore, it is another way of explaining the natural world. If one can decipher, one can decode its uh, remarkable language. Uh, now, of course, there's more to be said about that than what I just said. But hopefully, you, you got the, the, the idea that within Italy, Christians and Jews are studying the Kabbalah in all kinds of new ways. And not only studying it, but placing it aside, or placing it next to, contiguous to, various other disciplines to try to make sense, or try to create a kind of harmonic intellectual universe where all ideas connect. I mean, that is very much the mind of the 16th century. And thus, uh, complex figures in Jewish thought emerge with an interest both in Kabbalah and in, we, we don't really call it science, but certainly natural philosophy. Even in Horowitz's own time, one could mention a number of individuals, and I'll just mention one, a character who is really very well known in the 18th century in Berlin, an Eastern European Jew who comes to Berlin and becomes a remarkable philosopher named Solomon Maimon. We have discovered that this philosopher, uh, who is a very deep uh, thinker, who writes a commentary on Moses Maimonides but challenges its very epistemological core, also has written a text on the Kabbalah. So you see these uh, epistemic systems, which seem so different, in fact are relatable within the context of early modern Europe. In the 60s, to go back to where I began this work on Yagel many years ago, actually uh, my work was later than the 60s, more like the 80s, but nevertheless in the 60s, a, a woman at, um, in London named uh, Dame Frances Yates uh, wrote an essay which was extremely provocative uh, in, when, in its time, uh, which she called The Hermetic Origins of Modern Science. And then she wrote a book on Giard Giardano Bruno, the great uh, early modern scientist, in which she argued, unlike the way science had been told, in other words, science is all about rationalism, it's all about moving from uh, the dark ages to the enlightened world of rationalism, that indeed that journey, that trajectory is not necessarily correct. That people uh, like Galileo, like Bruno especially, like Newton especially, all of them were mystics. 
All of them were reading mystical texts. All of them were interpreting biblical prophecies, especially Newton. All of, uh, Newton was also interested in alchemy. Uh, uh, all of these mystical texts of Newton are actually at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. How they got there uh, is, a, is a long story, but they're all sitting there, and uh, uh, one historian has actually written a book on that material. So how do you explain Newton in the context of the mysticism and so on? You see it's not something that is, that is unheard of. So she argued that indeed hermeticism or this magical understanding of the world of rediscovering ancient texts on magic were an attempt to understand it. One has to see ancient magic as, as the science of its day or at least a form, a rational form of trying to make sense out of the natural world. And therefore in this period of time all kinds of knowledge, including esoteric occult knowledge and Kabbalistic knowledge, were relevant to the person trying to understand how the universe operated. So when I began to study Yagel and his own world of Kabbalah and science, uh, clearly uh, in the correlation between Kabbalistic theosophy, theosophy and natural philosophy uh, already rang a bell for me. Um, so Horowitz was doing what had been done already. In other words, in that sense, it was belated. But as you will see, Horowitz is also very different because all these other guys I've mentioned weren't read. I mean, Pico, of course, was read. Uh, Pico wrote this famous oration on the, on the dignity of man. I already spoke about him. Uh, and he became, this was the major tract of the Renaissance. Um, but the Jews around him, no one remembers their work. Yagel's writing is still in manuscript, so is Alimano's. Uh, so clearly they were known only to a, a few intellectuals that uh, were around the courts of the Renaissance. But as you will see, Horowitz's work was a popular work. The other aspect of Horowitz's work, which is linked to the early modern period, the period prior to his life, is the fact that he speaks about creating an encyclopedia. He calls it a Bund in German, and then he translates that word also in parentheses, encyclopedia. Sefer Habrit. Brit equals Bund equals encyclopedia. For him, putting together all kinds of knowledge is very important to him. That reminds me of the project of the Renaissance Encyclopedia, where all signs of the universe needed to be linked together, to be gathered together under one roof, so to speak. So therefore, again, the project of creating an encyclopedia is very much part of that earlier period uh, in terms of Jewish thought, but with one, uh, um, uh, one proviso or one um, uh, exception to what I'm saying. As you will see, uh, Horowitz left us specific instructions about this book. There is no index. There is no table of context. I'm sorry I couldn't bring you my copy because I, I made an index in the beginning and I have in the first two pages, you know, this is on page this and so on and so on because it's a total mess. Otherwise you can't get through the, the 700 pages. Uh, no index, no table of context, but a series of 12 covenants uh, which he gives to every publisher that he, they must abide by how the letters have to be produced, how many words on a page, the kind of pagination that should go on, 
Uh, and it's in a remarkable text, which is in the back of my book. I translated the whole thing. And from the point of view of the history of the book, it is an incredible text. How the printer should print the book, uh, how they should have to press really hard as pressers because so the ink will not be blurred and will appear distinct and so on and so forth. But the most interesting uh, covenant that he issues to his publisher is don't read this book haphazardly. You can't read a chapter here and a chapter there. You have to start from the beginning and you have to read chapter after chapter and as soon as you finish the last word of one chapter you have to read the next line of the next chapter and you have to read it throughout because it is a journey. So this is more like a medieval encyclopedia. It is a kind of ascent. You are making your move. First you start in the natural material world and then slowly but surely you gather enough information so that by the end of the book you are ascending to God. So in that sense, uh, it is a project which even goes back or suggests uh, its medieval origins. Now let me say a few words about the book and about Horowitz himself. Horowitz, as I said, was an autodidact, never went to the university. Like other uh, Jewish writers who studied medicine, uh, in my second lecture in this series, I spoke about Tuvia Kohen, the medical uh, uh, text that was written in 1704 by a graduate of the University of Padua, a highly learned book based upon scientific knowledge that he had accrued by listening to lectures in the medical school of Padua. Uh, this was a simple Eastern European Jew. He claims he wrote the work in Yiddish and then he translated it to Hebrew, and these were the only two languages he knew. However, in my search for uh, the remnants of his life, uh, I found a letter that he wrote to a censor of Hebrew books in Prague named Carl Fisher, a very well-known censor, a Christian who approved of the Hebrew books that were printed in Prague in this period of time. And the letter is from Pinchas Horowitz and is written in German. So uh, perhaps he knew German or perhaps uh, someone translated it for him. But it suggests, and indeed we have, uh, quite often in the book, he will give us the German, or, and sometimes it's the Yiddish word which he's looking for. And if he wants to explain a plant or an animal uh, or something in nature, he will give us what is often the German word, but also sometimes it's very hard to distinguish between that and the Yiddish word. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and sometimes you can recognize it and sometimes you cannot. Uh, but so perhaps he knew German as well. His scientific knowledge is clearly limited. He is a novice, uh, as I suggested. Um, he relies heavily on the library of early modern Hebrew texts, uh, and all of them are mentioned. And I could mention a whole series of names from Del Medigo to Tuvia, et cetera, et cetera. I won't. But clearly, if you look at the inventory of names that he is using, he relies heavily on Hebrew books that he read from the 16th and 17th century. Regarding general knowledge of the 18th century, he mentions Copernicus, Newton, atomism, the chemical philosophy, the measurement of air and water. He mentions contemporary scientists such as Blanchard and his discovery of the helium balloon, uh, Buchner, Christian Raff, George Buffon, and others. Most impressive is a discourse which I originally published separately on Edward Jenner and the discovery of smallpox. This is a remarkable chapter in which he describes in great detail the discovery of the small packs of vaccination of Edward Jenner's work. He describes this Jew who came from uh, England, uh, this uh, Christian who came from England, not a Jew, um, 
And what is really quite remarkable, after a long description of, uh, of smallpox uh, and uh, 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 how one uh, uh, vaccinates against to prevent, um, he, give, he tells us that in Krakow, he and another doctor uh, were involved in vaccinating over 1,000 Jewish kids. And that was very interesting because if you study the reception of smallpox, smallpox was a problem to a lot of people. Well, essentially what you're putting in, I have several doctors here sitting in the audience. I better be careful what I say here. I don't know a damn thing about smallpox. But uh, uh, essentially you're, you're putting in the ill stuff, the bad stuff. You're putting it into your body to create uh, a defense against it, right? So clearly the notion of doing that or using, using cowpox to put it that, as a kind of vaccination is something that for certain doctors who saw the human body as being far superior to the animal, it was something that was impossible. Um, in my book I compare Horowitz's reaction to another Jewish doctor in Germany who thought the idea of the inoculation as being totally ridiculous. But here we have in this Kabbalistic textbook a long description of smallpox. But there are other remarkable things. As I suggested, um, the helium balloon is described in great detail. Uh, and diving bells, and there should have been a picture there. He even uh, describes what it looks like of diving bell going down to the bottom of the sea. Or lightning rods or sound machines. What is interesting to this Kabbalist, and this is partly my answer to the, the question that I posed earlier, is that he is interested not so much in finding the regularity of nature, but in finding how, uh, in the natural world of, of the modern era, that there are always new discoveries which challenge the paradigms of old science. And therefore, instead of speaking about regularity, we can speak about the miraculous. For him, these new discoveries are the most exciting thing in which he spends the most time on. What an incredible world we live in. Every day the world changes, and every day we're discovering a new aspect of the divine. This is all about divine providence, ultimately, and our dependence on God. But clearly for him, the chance invention or the chance discovery is for him the most exciting dimension of the natural world. Pinchas Horowitz is, always in, is also interested in new philosophical developments. He knows Moses Mendelssohn. He mentions Benedict Spinoza, Leibniz, and Wolff, the great philosophers of the 18th century. But what is quite remarkable about this very simple Jew <clears throat> is his appreciation of the great philosopher Immanuel Kant. Where did Pinchas Horowitz study his Immanuel Kant? And why is Kant important for Pinchas Horowitz? Well, where he got it, he essentially copied a page and a half from Solomon Maimon's um, Givat HaMoreh. Uh, I mentioned this German philosopher of the 18th century who summarizes Kant before arguing with Kant uh, in his commentary on Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed. That was written in Hebrew, so therefore Pinchas Horowitz could read it. And he took it and he uses it for his own purpose. Why would he be interested in Kant? Because Kant wrote a work challenging the very notion of metaphysical knowledge as opposed to physical knowledge. What is beyond our own experience is something we cannot know, says Kant. In other words, challenging the whole scholastic enterprise of medieval philosophy. 
we can only do philosophy in the world that we are acquainted with. Uh, what is beyond reason is we are incapable of, no of knowing something that is beyond our own experience. And Kant calls such things as the creation of the world or divine providence an antimony. And antimony is something that is, uh, that the, in his critique of pure reason, is something that we cannot know. So therefore, uh, philosophy is finite. It deals with the natural world. It deals with the world of our own experience. But that which is beyond our experience is unknowable through philosophical means. Now why that is that important to Pinchas Horowitz? Because he too loves nature and the natural world. And he will explore nature through the scientists. But when it gets to the real serious stuff, like God and providence and creation, he has his Kabbalah. And that is the ultimate science for him. So therefore, what, how beautiful, how incredible that this man, Immanuel Kant, he says, discovered something that I knew all along, that philosophy is wrong, but natural philosophy is OK, as long as we can join it with Kabbalah. And then we have a metaphysics which is Kabbalistic, and a physics which is based upon the natural world. Science is kosher, but metaphysics and philosophy and exploring the mind which is beyond experience is not kosher. All right. So therefore, we have this incredible use of Kant. He also criticizes philosophy in another respect, and something which, was, which really creates a distance from the early modern Jew Jewish thinkers that I mentioned earlier. Philosophy is not indigenous to Judaism. Philosophy came from Athens and from Rome. Philosophy came from the classical world, says Horowitz. We, the biblical world, we, the, the rabbinic mind, are very different. The, even criticizing the beloved Maimonides. Maimonides brought an import and tried to transform Judaism through Greek knowledge. That's impossible. There is Athens over here, and there is Jerusalem over here, and never the twain shall meet. So what he provides us is also a history of philosophy in which he shows how in the Islamic world uh, philosophy entered uh, the Jewish canon but had not originally been a part of it. And therefore, in his attempt to purify Judaism so he can, uh, the Kabbalist can fully express himself, he embraces nature and the natural world and science, but he disassociates Judaism from its metaphysical, from its philosophical connections. In one other way, this book is different also from its early modern predecessors. And that is the fact that here is an author, I've already alluded to this, who is aware of books, of print, and how to sell a book. He is a bookseller. He's a mocher sforim, to use the Hebrew word or Yiddish or whatever. Uh, he speaks at length about his own experience of printing the book. The edition in Bruno, which you see over there, um, is the first edition. It was edited by two, it was published by two Christian publishers who then, uh, although he published seven haskamot, a haskama is, uh, what's the word, approbation. In other words, to get a rabbi to say this book is important and you should buy the book and you should not steal from this book. In other words, there was no kind of, the version of copyright as it existed in the 18th century. He had seven haskamot in this book. But nevertheless, these two Christian publishers couldn't care less about what the rabbis were saying about this book and published a pirate edition. He was furious. He was angry at these people. 
and he decided to rewrite the entire book so that in the building edition on the other side of the page, it is expanded by about 30-40%. And he argues, don't read that pirated edition, it is a bad edition, those people are ganavim, they stole, they, they have no right to, to steal my work, and so on. At the same time, he went around, and in the letter that I mentioned to Carl Fisher, it is quite remarkable. He tells Carl Fisher, the censor, I know you approve my book, and I'm going to show you now, I guess, as, a, as good a time as any. I don't know what direction I'm going here, but let's see what happens. First, I have to go this way. Um, no, it's sideways. That's right. All right. Oh, so this is from still the Bruno edition. And here, if you notice, oh, you can see the, you see that the, there are big letters, Aleph, Pei. It's not so clear. In my, uh, my version, you can see the red. Anyway, he, the reason why he got into trouble was because he tells us he, he, while he was writing this book, he worked so hard at night that he became blind. He could hardly see. And therefore, he made a vow to God that if he would get well, he would not take any credit for this book. He would do it only for the service of God. So the first edition doesn't have his name on it. That's why he got into trouble. That's why they pirated it. But if you read this carefully, this is the beginning. I know you can, not all of you can read Hebrew, but it, it says, uh, what does it say? It says, Ami Pinchas Harvitz. In other words, his name is in there, uh, the first letter of each word. So it's kind of a hidden script, but it, uh, it is there. Um, now, here is the censor page with Carl Fisher, okay? So here you have it in Yiddish, and here you have it in German, or German, yeah, Jewish German. Uh, but you, you can see clearly that Carl Fisher signed and approved this. So he writes to Carl Fisher and he says, um, you know, thank you for uh, censoring my book and approving it and so on and so on. By the way, if I send you five copies, can you distribute it, you know? And then he mentions all of his agents through about ten different cities where he's selling the book. You can buy the book in this city, you can buy the book in this city, you can buy the book in this city. This guy is really selling books. And he tells us in the second edition of the book that he sold 2,000 copies, which is probably a lot, so it's more than uh, my book sells. Uh, so uh, in any case, um, uh, what's really impressive, and there's so many other comments in this book about the notion of including the 12 covenants that I mentioned to you, how to publish the book, how he, he knew about the printing press. I mean, this is a, a, an author who is aware of the, no, of, of, of the power of print, uh, and wants to sort of control this and aggressively goes after uh, 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 customers to buy his book. Now, there are two more parts uh, before I close this lecture, and I'm looking at the time, so I'm going to try to finish uh, in about 15 minutes. So that would be, uh, uh, well, about 50 minutes altogether, so I hope you can handle that. Uh, now I want to turn to um, what I think is one of the most impressive chapters. As I said, is the chapter called Ahavat Rayim, the love of God's uh, neighbor? And, and the question is, what is this doing there, the love of one's neighbor in a book that is on science and perhaps on mystical ascent and morality? Now, I want to go back and see if I can find it. Um, oh, this way, okay. Um, okay, so um, this is the beginning of the text. Now, let me just say a word about the text before we jump in. Um, this is the 13th Discourse of Part 2. It is a discussion of universal ethics and a polemic with ethnocentric and parochial tendencies within the Jewish community. Horowitz's commitment is to loving all human beings, grounded in social contract theory, that is Rousseau. Uh, he doesn't mention Rousseau's name, but it is clear he is speaking about 
the notion of a social contract that all people uh, need to share. Um, he also relies on Kabbalistic sources. Um, how are we doing? We're okay? Um, and uh, he even mentions Chaim uh, Vital uh, himself. He claims that Jews need to love non-Jews, not merely as a defensive strategy, but as a supreme value in its own right. A primary condition, as we said, for imbibing the divine spirit marks his originality. Now, the context of this position needs to be examined in great detail. I don't have the time to do it this evening. But clearly, one can trace the history of Jewish attitudes towards non-Jews, beginning as early as the rabbinic period. I can tell you uh, from the research of several scholars, from Ernst Simon to Moshe Greenberg uh, to David Berger and others, that the commentaries on that verse in Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself, almost in every case, Jews say it refers to other Jews. In other words, there is no real universal morality in that text, no matter how we would like to interpret that text from the point of view of the Jewish exegetical tradition. In uh, the 13th century, we have uh, a commentator named Menachem Hameiri, a commentator of the Talmud, who begins to distinguish between the Gentile of the ancient world and the Christian of our day and already sees a difference between the two. We see a development throughout later medieval thought into the early modern period, right through Moses Mendelssohn in the 18th century, and contemporaries who are coming close to the position of recognizing that the other, the non-Jewish other, indeed is not a secondary character. We don't have a dual morality, but indeed we should treat all human beings uh, 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 equally. But not until 19th century liberal Judaism, and not until, and in Italian Jewish thought, people like Samuel David Luzzato and Eliyahu Ben Amuzeg and others who declare that the Jewish morality of the rabbis is insufficient. We need to expand and universalize our idea. Does this idea play out in full bloom? So what is really curious here, and I, I don't even have to read you the text. You can read it. You've read it yourself. But this is the beginning of that chapter, uh, the natural tendency to do good. Oh, no. But I'll, or I'm going to explain this text right in a second. So the first part of the chapter, that's not the first uh, uh, paragraph. That's about the 10th paragraph. Talks about the universal nature of love. And so the question is, where does he get this from? Why does this Jew sitting in Eastern Europe, you know, from Vilna, what does he care about loving all non-Jews? And why is this so, put it within a mystical ascent? You can't feel God and touch God unless you love non-Jews? Where does that appear in Jewish tradition? He doesn't mention any sources. In fact, he, he, he acknowledges the fact that he's creating this idea on his own. So I want to suggest one possibility, and that is this text right here. Finally, I got to the right place. Okay. So this is the only th way he digresses. And he tells us a story, as you can see, of a man named Leopold of Brunswick, who he calls a mention Freud, Freund, who clearly is a man who was uh, living in Frankfurt Oder, and there was a flood, all right? And we can read and experience teaches us many times that even the sons of man, notice there's a, the, 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 the rubric of this section there's a natural tendency to do good on the part of all human beings. Experience teaches us that many times that even the sons of kings and the rulers of the earth put themselves in mortal danger. So he describes the odor river rising, right? Uh, higher and higher, and 
uh, many pieces of wood and windows unhinged from their homes floated through the streets. In the midst of all of that floated one large piece of wood and it stood in person. It was impossible, etc. When the great and honored prince, Duke Leopold of Brunswick, who was then the commandant of the city, saw this, he immediately commanded his navy to come to him in boats to save this man, but they were not able and said to him, we are incapable to do this because of the powerful water currents and high waves. No ship can make it through, etc., etc. Before reaching, so but he goes out anyway, before reaching halfway across the river, his boat is capsized, he was overtaken by the many waves, the boat sank, and the righteous prince was lost. And no one could save him. On the bottom of that page. So let me now show you what this looks like. Okay. So there's... So as it turns out, this is not a story he made up, but a very well-known narrative of in, that happened actually in the year 1785 of a very famous prince named Leopold. And he clearly was celebrated by Germans and by French and even by English uh, and even by uh, uh, Eastern Europeans as this remarkable man of altruism that despite his background, in other words, you don't have to be Jewish to be a good person, obviously. You, any person should be a good person. There's a natural inclination to be good. He just gave of his own life and he became the hero of his generation. German poets such as Schiller, Goethe, Lessing, all write poems in honor of Leopold. Uh, also, I found, to my amazement, a eulogy, a hespade, by the rabbi of Frankfurt de Oder named Yaakov Teomim. He is not a liberal rabbi. He is a very orthodox rabbi that writes rabbinical responsa. But nevertheless, I discovered a German translation of the sermon he gave in the synagogue speaking about this man in heroic proportion. I mean, I, unbelievable. How can an Orthodox rabbi be speaking about uh, a, uh, a Christian who died as a kind of martyr? How will I connect this? Well, the connection that I want to make, and it's a very loose connection, uh, is that perhaps this is a Jewish echo of something larger. We know that Leopold was a major figure in Freemasonry. Does anybody know anything about Freemasons? Any Freemasons here? Uh, when I give a lecture on, uh, when I talk about Freemasonry in England, uh, half the audience stands up, particularly Jews. For some, some reason, Freemasonry is something that's really well known to them. Uh, as you may know, uh, uh, the great uh, uh, writer Lessing was a, uh, a Mason who wrote his famous Masonic Dialogues. Um, and he also wrote a work called Nathan the Wise, which is a play uh, in which he embraces the humanity of a Jew. Uh, it's a remarkable play. Lessing was also a close friend of the Jewish philosopher Moses Mendelssohn. Uh, Leopold was a hero of Freemasonry. That is Leopold, that guy there. So not only poetry, not only uh, literature are there references. There's a whole book on uh, the reception history of this story. But notice the artist here who depicts uh, Leopold uh, from a variety of uh, paintings. Um, so clearly he was a hero of that generation. And this Jew of Vilna records this story to make the argument that being good has nothing to do with ethnic origin. It is a natural uh, 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 understanding that we are all good. Uh, at the end of this chapter, there is a sermon uh, uh, on the 
Ark of the Covenant in which he describes the two angels that are sitting on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the Kruvim, uh, and they're looking at each other and like children, like Puti, like little children, little, uh, little uh, infantile uh, angels. Have you ever seen Baroque art? And they're looking at each other and embracing each other. I said, look, this comes from real life. Uh, I don't know if this is to be true. I mean, I have, to tell, I have to think about my granddaughters whether this works. But actually, if you put a little child in the room, he says, they immediately will play, they will drop everything that they're playing with and turn to the other person. And all of a sudden you see from uh, at the early years of birth, uh, there is a human connection that emerges. The natural inclination of human beings is to love, is to embrace other human beings. And therefore these two puti, these two little uh, angels that are sitting in the Ark of the Covenant describe for him uh, this human embrace, which then returns us back to Freemasonry. I don't know if, if Freemasonry had an impact upon Pinchas Horowitz, but where the hell did he get this story from? Where did he know about this image, other than the fact that the Freemasons in Germany at the end of the 18th century were indeed uh, embracing it, celebrating it, and talking about uh, the humanity, the universalism, the universal ethics which were behind it. I come to my very last part of this uh, story, and I'll do this very quickly, but uh, this is the one aspect that I want to end with. I want to talk about the legacy of this book. I collected uh, uh, more than 100 references to this book in Jewish literature in the 19th, 20th century. I'm going to just mention three of them because they are all very interesting. Here is the title page from the first Yiddish edition of Sefer Habrit, Warsaw, 1898, translated by Yosef Meir ben Shmuel Yitzchak Yavitz. Um, and he writes, all the sciences of the world, the heaven, earth, and oceans, including all living creatures, are clearly explained. Above all, the precious divine accomplishments with which man is crowned. The famous work was written in holiness and purity in the holy tongue by the pious scholar and rabbi Pinchas of Vilna of blessed memory. The present work shines augustly in the Jewish skies like the sun. As the work was printed the first time anonymously, as, as I said, the rabbinic sages believed that it was written by the great Gaon of Vilna, uh, 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 the subject of my lecture at lunch today. Uh, and to make it easier in the eyes of those who do not understand the holy tongue, this work has now been translated into simple jargon, that means Yiddish, by the well-known translator Yosef Meir Yavitz, the translator of Mishnoyos, Midroshim, Chok Yaakov, Ein Yaakov, print, reprinting is strictly forbidden. Um, if you've ever seen editions of Sefer Habrit that you can buy today, they're printed just like a holy book. In other words, now I'm trying to give you the secret of why this book sort of took off. It was a holy book. In other words, this is like the Mishnah and the Midrashim. These are all rabbinic texts, holy texts, sacred texts that traditional scholars study. And therefore, in painting it this way, in other words, it's the kind of book that belongs on your traditional bookshelf. But if you're not convinced, let me give you one more testimony. I'm going to only give you three. This is the second. This is the testimony of Solomon Sofer, the grandson of Moshe Sofer, Chatam Sofer. Who is Chatam Sofer? Chatam Sofer is famous for a line. Kol chadash min ha-Torah asur. Any Hebraist here can translate that line? 
anything new is forbidden by the Torah. Now that you would say is a pretty conservative position, right? Tea party for sure, right? Anything new is forbidden by the Torah. That was the line. He was an arch-conservative. He was part of this orthodox group, not neo-orthodox, but clear, strong uh, uh, orthodox establishment that came on strong, uh, publishing a work called Ele Divrei Abri, these are the words of the covenant, against the new reformed Jewish movement uh, in the first decades of the 19th century. Khatam Sofer has been studied now by an, and is a much more complex figure than that, simply that line that I quoted, um, but nevertheless was clearly an arch-conservative rabbi. Here is the testimony of his grandson, Solomon Sofer. Um, he served uh, as rabbi of, uh, was never, okay. Chatam Sofer, uh, uh, on, on his grandfather, uh, so he quotes his grandfather, who said the following. Moses Sofer was an expert in the science of measurement, algebra, and the calendar. In this he was quite efficient and able. So he speaks about his arch-conservative rabbi, grandfather, Moses Sofer, being interested in these subjects. He was also proficient in astronomy and physics and began to compose a special book on these sciences so that it would be handy to his students to study from it without having to consult Gentile authorities. But when the Book of the Covenant was published, he examined it from beginning to end and declared that anyone who desires to satisfy himself in various sciences should acquire it. For I and you are indebted to the author since I was able to acquire much valuable time and not having to write a book like this for you. So this is Khatam Sofer. So even Khatam Sofer gives his approbation, suggests that it is readable. Now, the, the most precious testimony, and I have so many of them, and it, you know, from all walks of life, we're talking about Orthodox rabbi, we're speaking about Hasidim, about Mitnagdim, uh, the, 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 uh, we're speaking about Yiddish writers, um, uh, um, who was the uh, Yiddish writer that won the Nobel Prize? Um, Isaac Beshevet Singer tells us in his memoirs that this was his favorite book of his, of his mother, which she read in Yiddish. Uh, and, there, and, and Agnon read uh, this book, and all kinds of people. Uh, and of course, secular Maskilim, who loved that chapter on the universal love of all humanity. In other words, the, the, the secular enlightened Jews as well. So here we have a book that Hasidim loved and, uh, and Maskilim loved, uh, enlightened Jews loved at the same time. A, a remarkable bestseller. But here is the best example I could find. There is a book um, that was published in 2002 by uh, Jeffrey Chandler. Uh, called Autobiographies of Jewish Youth in Poland Before the Holocaust. YIVO, uh, the Organization for uh, the Study of Eastern European Jewry, uh, had in the 1930s an essay contest in which they asked young Jewish students to write about themselves and they would receive a prize if they won this essay contest. And lo and behold, we have all of these essays that were preserved in the archive of YIVO. Uh, and Jeffrey has gone in and studied them and put them together in a book which describes young minds, young people who wrote about their dreams and aspirations only a few years before the Holocaust. So here is one of their testimonies, a little bit of it. A young boy who calls himself Chenech wrote in Yiddish in, 18, in 1934 that he was a student at the Chofetz Chaim Yeshiva in Radon very serious uh, orthodox uh, seminary. He writes, I obtained a copy of the Book of the Covenant. 
and virtually committed it to memory, reading it in the bathroom for fear of being caught and confronted with a whole new series of accusations. The Book of the Covenant gave me a sound foundation in anatomy, physics, geography, and the like. I had a weakness, however, for showing off my scientific learning to my friends without telling them about its source. This led to my becoming known as a person of wide-ranging knowledge, and I was sought after by those who were drawn to the Haskalah, to the Enlightenment. Now, what's interesting about this, first of all, I call this Sefer Habrid on the toilet. I mean, that's where he was learning this. Um, I don't know what books you reserve for that room, but nevertheless, uh, that's where he was learning it. But then notice what kind of yeshiva bachar he is, a kind of yeshiva student. He, he, he memorizes it. That's what he does with a Mishnah. So he starts memorizing the damn book, and then it becomes, you know, he's smart. Anybody can talk about, you know, anatomy or, uh, or, or uh, physics or anything uh, that's in the book. Um, so like, and, and, and then he's, of course, accused of being a Moscow. Now, why, of course, he should feel inhibited from studying the book? The book was, my, my point is that it was totally accepted by the Orthodox Jewish world. Uh, but nevertheless, he's inhibited. But nevertheless, but, but we have a, a wonderful example of a Jewish student showing off his knowledge of the sciences by memorizing the Sefer Habrit, the Book of the Covenant. So let me simply summarize by saying there are many paths to modernity. Um, there are historians that love to categorize uh, the figures of the past by labeling, labeling them. They're reform and they're orthodox and they're neo-orthodox and they're conservative, and they're Bundist, and they're Zionist, and they're this, and they're that, and so on. Uh, what I seek as an historian is the ambiguity, uh, is the complexity, uh, is, uh, is the nuance of our Jewish historical past, or of any historical past for that matter. And what I suggest with this book is that this book is as modern as any modern philosophical work of the, of the 18th, 19th, or 20th century. It is a work which attempts to understand the new world with, within the framework of the old. It is a mixture of traditionalism, of rejection of philosophy, but an embrace of the natural world. Uh, on the one hand, it is about a kind of Jewish, esoteric, mystical ascent, but it is also a plea for universal ethics and for loving all human beings, a very modern idea. So how do you categorize this book? Is this book old-fashioned or new-fashioned? And why does it sit on so many Jewish bookshelves? There were many books written on science by a whole generation of Jewish maskilim, of Jewish enlightened figures, who tried to write textbooks for the Jewish school. In the 18th and 19th century, we have a whole flowering of them, but none of them ever went into 40 editions. So there was something about this, the kind of sanctity of the Kabbalah, its kosher seal of approval, so to speak, that made it a book that, as that Yiddish uh, editor said, uh, should be on the shelf with the Mishnah and the Talmud and all these other rabbinic works. And it remains. And believe it or not, the last thing I want to tell you is um, my, the final research of this project was to go on Orthodox Haredi chat lines on the internet. Believe it, there are Sichot HaCharedim, the, the, how do you translate that, the discussions of the most ultra-Orthodox. And believe it or not, I found pages and pages about, is the Sefer Abrid a good book to learn contemporary science? They're writing in the 21st century, uh, and this is an 18th century book. But they're, you know, this is really uh, 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 provocative that they should be, and of course, all of them say this is a good book. 
what's interesting is some of the Orthodox Jews, of course, ignore that long chapter on universal ethics. Um, but nevertheless, they find something else in there. And there are even rabbis that say, when you read this book, um, uh, there, there's a rabbi who was the rabbi of Pontevich Yeshiva. I forgot his name, and I'm not going to read another text to you, uh, in, in, uh, outside of Tel Aviv and B'nai Brak, uh, who says, I keep this book next to me because it will usher in the coming of the Messiah. Uh, I'm not sure where the Messiah is in this book, but nevertheless, you know, we see a book through different eyes, and that's the wonderful thing about the reception of a book. But nevertheless, here is a book for all ages, for all times, and for all kinds of Jews. Um, if we can only find more books or more authors or more ways in which Jews could speak with each other, as well as to non-Jews, uh, that would be a blessing. In any case, I hope I have given you a sense of my own fascination with this book. I'm sorry I spoke too long, uh, but nevertheless, uh, just exactly an hour, and you were patient with me. Um, but uh, I can answer some questions if you would like, uh, or I can go home, uh, or whatever you would like. But thank you so much for listening to me. Uh, and I hope you will remember an author named Pinchas Horowitz and his book, The Book of the Covenant. Thank you. Plenty of time. OK. Yeah, I once gave, when this book first came out, I gave a talk at Washington, D.C., JCC, one of the big, and some guy came up to me and says, you know, is this in English? I have to read it. Uh, and I said, no. Uh, and he said, uh, he came up to me afterwards, and he was insisting. He says, I, I'm going to write out a check right now. You translate it. Uh, and he was offering me all kinds of money. It was like a bribe. And I said, I don't want to translate it. It's not so simple. And I'll find a translator. And he got really indignant. He got really angry at me. Uh, so you're not doing that, right? I mean, I, um, <laughs> But um, I, um, there, uh, there are no bilingual editions. There's Yiddish. But the, the Ladino is really interesting. Ladino, uh, in fact, um, in uh, Salonika in the 1820s, uh, an editor uh, in Salonika, now what we're talking about is the language spoken by Jews in the Ottoman Empire. These were Jews who originally had come from Spain and Portugal and brought with them their Spanish dialect, which uh, they uh, combine with Hebrew, like Yiddish is a hybrid language. Ladino is also a, a language. We have a, a great expert on Ladino that uh, teaches an Irvine named Matthias Lehman, um, who uh, mentions uh, Sefer Habrit in his book on rabbinic literature in uh, the Ottoman Empire. Um, in any case, uh, an editor chose to publish the chapter Havat Re'im separately. The, the chapter on universal love, separately. And he called it Torah Adam, the Torah of human beings. So uh, Salonika Jews were quite progressive and liberal in that sense, uh, in, in terms of putting forth this universal ethics. But as I said, many of the rabbis just ignored that chapter, but they never you know, argued with it. They just let it be there. Uh, whether it you know, had any impact, or, or that's another story. Um, so we have, and, and the Latin, uh, the Ladino versions, are kind of, they, they, they're published with all kinds, they saw it as a kind of storybook. So they publish parts of Sefer Habrit or the entire Sefer Habrit or a condensed version of Sefer Habrit together with, for example, a Ladino version of Robinson Crusoe. 
um, and, and other stories and tales. In other words, for them, this was a book of great entertainment, of enlightenment, and therefore, let's put it all together. Uh, I have a, a friend who was a Ladino expert, and she um, worked with me when I was in uh, Spain for a month uh, reading the Ladino versions, and they're really different. I, mean, I can't read Ladino, so uh, I can't do very much with it, but they really deserve to be studied. So we have Ladino, we have Yiddish, that's all we have. Um, and the, the English selections that I have in my book, uh, but they are not so many. Um, and we don't have any, we don't have any other, it's never been put in another edition. So this book was especially uh, uh, popular for Eastern European Jews and for Ottoman Jews. Um, for traditional Jewish society, this is science for traditional Jews. That's what we're speaking about here. Uh, and unfortunately, there's no translation. I don't know if it would be worth translating um, but uh, you can read my book and decide whether uh, it really has any merit to be translated, or you can not read my book, either case. Um, other questions? Yeah, it is basically Spanish. It's, it's uh, Castilian Spanish with Hebrew words. It's like, you like Yiddish is a German, you know, it's, it's, it's very similar. What is very interesting about uh, the early modern period is the creation of two new Jewish languages, basically. Yiddish goes back, you know, to the late Middle Ages. Ladino is much later, uh, you know, after the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, and it, it only uh, enters the world, you know, uh, a print in the 18th century and beyond. Um, but basically, uh, both languages are a reflection of two new Jewish worlds that are created in the early modern period. The Jews of Poland, Lithuania, Eastern European Jewry, uh, and the Jews of the Ottoman Empire. Both of these communities emerge uh, after the, uh, fr from the 16th century on. Uh, so we are speaking about uh, the creation of two new large Jewish communities. And interestingly enough, they brought their languages with them and preserved them over time. So of course some Jews knew Turkish, but they still spoke Ladino and they still wrote and published in Ladino. And similarly, uh, the Jews of Eastern Europe continued to speak Yiddish, although it was a, a version of German. I mean, some of them obviously learned Polish and Russian later on, but clearly uh, they felt the need to preserve the language of their ancestry, and it was passed on. Of course, they knew Hebrew as well, but Hebrew was a language of text. The Hebrew was a language of, of sacred study, while uh, these languages were languages that were part of the daily life of Jews living in Eastern Europe or in the Ottoman Empire. But I'm Taking your question too far. Okay, anyway, anyway that's the answer. Yes, uh, Sybil. Last edition was pr uh, printed about a year ago. Uh, they're still reading this book, this, uh, the Safer Abreed. Yeah, I have a new edition. My, um, here, I'll go back. Um, now I'm going the wrong way. Where am I at? Let me see where I am. Not the partial one, that means not the first edition, the pirated one, but the new one. 
uh, and indeed in its book. So these were all done by orthodox publishers. These are not academic books. Um, the new edition purports to be a more uh, systematic reading of several different versions and collating them with notes. But the notes are very primitive. In other words, they, they don't deal with religious matters. They simply deal with technical issues of explaining all of the names and the words of the, of the body of anatomy and all of that kind of thing. So clearly the new edition is better than this one, but it is also written for the consumption of Orthodox Jews. Ultra-Orthodox Jews. Yes. Yes. Well, the example of Luftballoon, it's, it's also in Pinchas Horace exactly the same. In other words, he describes in, uh, is, it, this is not an area that I, I really focused on, so I, I can't really say, uh, you know, definitively. It, it certainly deserves, uh, it is, first of all, like all of these texts, I, the more I study them, the more I see where he copies from his sources without acknowledgement. And, and, and many of his sources come from the Moschilic, See, uh, prior to Slominsky, you, you have a whole series of Maskilim, Baruch Landau, for example, uh, a, a whole series of them who are writing textbooks for, in Hebrew on science for Jewish kids. And clearly, without referring to them, he cites them, or uh, sometimes he cites them, and some, sometimes he just copies from them. Uh, so, uh, but, but, but of course, he's very proud that the helium balloon and the diving bell and so on are his own. I don't remember how he describes them, but it is a very kind of primitive description. And in each case, he gives a German word uh, or I, I, what could be a Yiddish word. I, mean, I, 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 I don't know German or Yiddish well enough to be able to dis always to distinguish. Uh, and I didn't you know, work with an expert there. But clearly, uh, th that la the language of science, of course, is a really interesting thing and brings us back to the famous project, you know, remember of Klatskin's uh, philosophical Hebrew terms, Klatskin, uh, who is another thinker I'm writing, I'm talking about, believe me, I'm talking about everything in these 20 lectures, uh, but I'm talking about his Zionist vision, but Klatskin was this great uh, encyclopedia, he was the editor of the Jewish Encyclopedia before, the, before World War II, uh, and Klatskin wrote a, 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 um, a remarkable book, a, a, um, a dictionary of scientific terms, scientific and philosophical terms from the Middle Ages on. 
So I, I would start there to look in the Klatskin work, but now the Klatskin work has been picked up by others and they're trying to put this online and trying to bring it up to date. There are a whole group of scholars that are working in Hamburg on the project of the Klatskin dictionary. So they would be the ones to consult. But, but clearly, I, I think your, uh, you know, the, the notion of how these terms are translated is a fascinating story, uh, something that I, I, I more or less ignored, uh, but needs to be. Uh, but I, I would think it would be similar to, uh, in other words, you'd have to sort of compare the variety of other texts. And some of that work has also been done at Tel Aviv University. There are a whole group of people that have been studying children's texts on science in Hebrew. Um, and um, I, I, you know, I, I don't recall if they've actually looked at the issue of language, but it is an important issue in terms of how these animals and how these birds and how the, the plants are described and so on. But quite often he has to fall back on translation, which he does regularly. Um, so, uh, so that's the easy answer. Uh, and I can't, maybe, I, I don't recall what the Hebrew sounds like for Luftballoon, but uh, um, uh, I'm sure it's 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 cute like uh, yours. Yes. Has this book for the uh, modern Orthodox community provided a catalyst for increasing their interest in science? I think so. I mean, uh, you know, it was kind of entertaining. It was enlightening. Um, again, when I look at, uh, I have a long chapter in my book where I describe the reception of the book, and I cite all kinds of citations. Um, for example, just to give you one more, since I uh, just want to show you the variety of approaches. Now, if I can't find it, I'll give up, but let me just see if I can. Um, yeah, it would be here. One second, don't leave me. Um, yeah, I got it. All right. So some, some of you have heard of Solomon Schechter, right? Solomon Schechter uh, was the European-born uh, rabbi who served as the head of the Jewish Logical Seminary of America, the great conservative institution for training rabbis. Uh, he wrote at the beginning of the uh, century, it was a dream of my childhood when I learned through the Sefer Habrit and the letters of Chag Videver, uh, Henry Videver, who lived from 1833 to 1882, the American rabbi and Hebrew writer, he quotes from the Sefer Breed in the Hebrew weekly Hamagid, which was a journal of enlightened Jews, of the existence of a continent on which, according to my simple calculations, people should stand on their heads and who yet somehow managed to walk erect and free and even more quicker and with a surer pace than we with all our drill uh, of thousands of years. Uh, in other words, Solomon Schechter, as a child, was exposed to this book in terms of imagining America. Uh, and the continent of America, and how people could live on the other side of the globe, et cetera, et cetera, and stand up erect. Um, so, uh, as you see, this was indeed a catalyst for the Jewish imagination, and for thinking about the world in a new way. Uh, under the patina, under the under the the the, 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 the a, a very kosher stamp of of also studying Kabbalah and being simply a commentary on Chaim Vital, who is who is a very serious uh, pious Jew. Um, so I would, I'm, I'm, it's really hard to, to get at that question and so, other than give many, many examples like this. And I, I, have, I have several more. Uh, uh, just uh, forgive me for one more. No, if I don't have it, uh, the one I want to show. Uh, yeah. Um, Rabbi Matisyahu Solomon, the spiritual guide, Mashkiach Ruchani. That's what he calls himself in Hebrew. Of the Lakewood Yeshiva in New Jersey. I'm telling you, this book is read reported. 
that he first saw this book, Sefer Habrit, on the desk of the Honorable Rabbi Shach, that's Eliezer Shach, 1899-2001, the ultra-Orthodox rabbi and head of the Pontevich Yeshiva. I, me I mentioned that in B'nai Brak. And when he began to look casually through the book, the rabbi told him, that, this is what I, I described before, the book will never be removed from my desk. When the Mashiach asked him the reason for this, he showed him the following passage in Sefer Abrid, section 9, chapter 16, on the length of the exile and the hope of the coming of the Messiah, and said of himself, when I read his words, that is Horowitz, it serves me as a support, a chizuk, for the correct approach to our still being in exile. So, uh, unbelievable. I, I don't know what this book has to do again with the Messiah and the exile and so on. But here's an orthodox, another ultra-Orthodox rabbi that reads this book in this way. So I, 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 I don't know, you know, I, I can't really convert it into any kind of formula of modernization. But nevertheless, um, it was obviously one of the few books outside the rabbinic texts that ultra-Orthodox Jews could study and approve of uh, and, uh, and felt that it was theirs. It was coming from their sources and so on. Uh, obviously, it needs a new installment and an updating a little bit, right? Um, but nevertheless, um, uh, it still seems to be part of the active memory or the active uh, engagement of Jews living even in the 21st century. So you're tired? All right, just a couple more questions and we'll stop. Uh, oh, they keep coming up. Uh, all right, so yes, over here. No, no English. I think English readers uh, have many more w uh, ways to access science than, say, for Habrit. Uh, it, w it was really a creation of a traditional Jewish community uh, that read Yiddish and Hebrew uh, and that uh, would not approve of other kinds of books entering in. Now, of course, there, uh, throughout Jewish history, Jews read books in other languages. Uh, medieval period, they read Latin books, uh, they read Arabic books, they wrote in Arabic, etc. Uh, in the Renaissance period, they also read Latin, Italian, uh, all kinds of languages. But this particular uh, relatively insulated community in Eastern Europe um, lived with their own work. Um, of course, we know now that you know, Russian Jews went off to the university. We know much more about the assimilated types. There's just a new book that just came out uh, by my student uh, Eli Schenker about conversion in Russian Jewish society in the 19th century. Uh, and, and intermarriage between uh, 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 Jewish kids and, and, uh, and non-Jewish kids. Uh, this is Eastern Europe, not Western Europe, where, of course, uh, uh, that, that was much more uh, common. Um, so, uh, indeed, for this particular population, this was uh, a book for all seasons. Uh, and thus, uh, but, but for English readers, you know, I, I, it just didn't occur. I, I think the book would look rather outdated and silly in English, I, I know, but in Hebrew it just takes on, on the one hand, the aura of sanctity, and the other hand, it's filled with wonderful stories and information that uh, an Orthodox Jew can feel comfortable in absorbing. But uh, maybe we'll find some, some idiot that will spend all of his time translating this text. I spent 10 years translating another text from the 16th century. I always felt that to be a Jewish scholar, you have to translate one book. Um, it was, that was before the internet and before I could, you know, check my sources through the internet. You know, I was just look, look, looking all, through all of these, you know, uh, uh, glossary of terms and looking at indexes. And it, it, it was totally, uh, uh, it took 10 years and it wasn't worth it. Nobody ever read the book. But anyway, uh, uh, but I did it. I proved myself. What? 
one more question. Okay, thank you, Jeffrey. Um, okay, um, I'm, I'm actually looking in the mirror, so that must be you over there, because I'm looking at you in the mirror. Okay, you go on, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, it's in the second part. It's on the part that turns to questions of ethics and morality, uh, of love, of fear of God is the chapter that precedes it, for example. It is the penultimate chapter of the second part. So before you enter the Holy of Holies and you sanctify yourself to meet your God, so to speak, you have to love your neighbor. So that's really quite impressive. I mean, I, I really like that idea, so that's why... Uh, I spent time studying it. I like it very much. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you very much.